The following podcast contains flashing noises. Episode 4 Crime Nap. Everybody hates September the 11th, and who can blame them? It's a stupid day. But it wasn't always stupid. Once upon a time, September the 11th was a day of joy, a day of celebration, a day only surpassed in popularity by Christmas and Wolf Awareness Monday. Listeners may find it hard to believe, but September the 11th even used to be some people's birthday. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, September the 11th. Happy birthday to you. See? But for Laura Bingdat, born in 1962, September the 11th was more than just her birthday. In fact, it was 17 days more than just her birthday, because her birthday was August the 25th. Happy September the 11th to you. Happy September the 11th to you. Happy September the 11th, August the 25th. Happy September the 11th to you. Imagine how many times Laura heard that sung at her by musical bullies. It doesn't bear thinking about, but it's three times, but don't think about it. In 1974, Laura Bingdat was 12 years old. At least, she was until August the 25th. After that, no one can be really sure. She had been born an orphan, and so had been brought up by her godmother, Alice Dorsheim, in one of the United States of America. Alice Dorsheim wasn't actually Laura's biological godmother, but she was her chemical one, so that was fine. When she adopted Laura... Alice was living in an apartment in Yonkers, New York, but in 1971 the two of them had moved to Brooklyn, as that sounded less silly. Once they had settled in Brooklyn, Alice sent Laura to the local school. In fact, she did it every day. The school was only 50 metres away from their home, but walking those 50 metres involved negotiating a minefield of drug addicts, child abusers and landmines, as well as a dangerous pylon, a deep pond, some fireworks and a cliff. Fearing for Laura's safety, Alice made her go to school the long way round, which meant catching seven buses and took her three hours each way. At 5.45 on the evening of Tuesday, March 3rd, 1974, it was raining really hard in Brooklyn, and Laura, who had been kept behind in school for being a dickhead, had missed her usual bus home. She waited 25 minutes for another one, but none came that she liked the colour of, so she decided to risk it and walk the 50 metres home just this once. She managed to avoid electrocution, drowning, all the landmines and most of the child abuse, although she did grab a lit firework and fall off the cliff. But she got home with only a few broken bones and a couple of minor missing fingers, so she began to wonder what all the fuss was about. 
She decided there and then that she'd use this shortcut to and from school all the time from now on and save herself six hours of travel a day. Big mistake. But Laura would never know just how big a mistake it was because that night someone broke into their apartment while she was asleep and kidnapped her. Happy March the 3rd to you. Happy March the 3rd to you. Happy March the 3rd, dear kidnapped in the middle of the night. Happy March the 3rd to you. Laura woke up the next morning to discover she was in a strange room. So strange, in fact, that it looked like there was a window on the floor. But that was because she was lying down. Immediately she leapt to her feet and began banging on the door in what she had thought was the ceiling, yelling, let me out, let me out, twice. So that's let me out, let me out, let me out, let me out, in total. Yep. She didn't notice the door wasn't actually locked. In fact, it wasn't even closed. But by the time she did notice, eight or nine hours later, her kidnapper had returned. According to Laura's subsequent testimony, he was of medium height, with medium eyes, a medium accent, and a medium habit of scratching his balls when he was amused or alarmed. One thing that struck her immediately, however, was that on his right forearm was a distinctive tattoo of a wanker, and she determined that once she managed to escape, the first thing she'd do would be to get a tattoo just like it, then go for a poo. Happy get a tattoo, happy get a tattoo, happy tattoo of a wanker, then go for a poo. Unfortunately for Laura, she wouldn't be able to visit a tattoo parlour for many years, and by that time she'd actually changed her mind and just got a small tattoo of a headache instead. However, back on March the 4th, 1974, She had more pressing things to worry about, such as what her abductor intended to do with her. But he just stood there, staring at her for a good 15 seconds, then a bad 20 seconds. And when he finally spoke, Laura couldn't quite believe what it was that he said. If you like pigeons, and you like water, and you're a Christian, then you'll love Christian Pigeons in Water, a brand new monthly magazine full of interesting articles about Christian Pigeons in Water, fully illustrated with full-colour photos of Christian Pigeons in Water, as well as a glossy pull-out poster of the Christian Pigeon in Water of the Month. Issues 1 and 3 now available in all good news agents. What are you talking about? said Laura. How can a pigeon be Christian? Who'd want to buy a magazine like that? And what's all that got to do with me anyway? Her kidnapper didn't reply. He just turned round and walked out of the room, this time making sure he shut the door behind him. As soon as he'd gone, Laura rushed to the door and tried it, but she didn't like it. So she went over to the mattress that was the only piece of furniture in the room apart from a toolbox and a gun cabinet, lay back down 
and screamed herself to sleep. In the space of just 24 hours, her whole life had been turned upside down. Happy upside in life, happy upside in life, none of this could have happened a few of in faith. Come to faith. Meanwhile, back at their Brooklyn apartment, Alice had realised something was wrong at breakfast that morning when Laura hadn't finished her cornflakes. When she looked more closely, she realised Laura hadn't started them either, and she began to get really worried, as soon they'd get too soggy to eat. She called to Laura to come and eat her breakfast, but when there was still no reply after a couple of days, she went up to Laura's bedroom to see what the problem was. The room was empty, the window was open, and there was a note on the bed that read, I have kidnapped your daughter and you will never see her again. It was around this time that Alice started to suspect something might have happened to Laura. Alice quickly wrote a letter to the police informing them about her goddaughter's disappearance. The police sent back a postcard the very next day which said that in order for them to launch an investigation, the person had to be missing 48 hours, signed the police. As it was now a good deal more than 48 hours since Laura had gone missing, Alice reckoned there was probably no point now, but she sent the police a card back anyway, as it was their birthday. Happy birthday, dear police. Police rhymes with geese. It doesn't rhyme with gravel, but it does rhyme with grease. The police were so touched by Alice's birthday card and her present, a frisbee, that they decided to investigate her goddaughter's disappearance anyway as a favour to her and gave it top priority. Now in any missing person case, the first ten days are said to be the most fun. The police appealed for anyone with any information or amusing anecdotes about Laura to come forward, and when that didn't furnish anything useful, they widened the investigation. Pictures of Laura soon appeared on the back of milk cartons, soup cans, tubes of toothpaste, and even on transfers given away free with packets of shreddies, which also had a picture of her bedroom on the back where you could rub down the transfers and create your own abduction scene but it was all to no avail. Meanwhile, Laura was having the time of her life. Unfortunately, the time of her life was awful. Her routine was simple, and every day was the same, totally different to the one before. But an example of an average itinerary for Laura might be get up, remain kidnapped, brunch fist, light mental torture, tea and cake, irritating physical abuse, free time, biting, joke of the day, scream yourself to sleep. It was literally intolerable, but she learned to tolerate it quite easily, even managing to have a tiny bit of fun from time to time, and a couple of really super months. But mainly it was terrible. However, she never gave up hope of escaping, and little by little she began testing the limits of what her captor would allow. For instance, initially part of the daily schedule was that she had to go to the toilet in front of him until he asked her to stop doing it and let her have the use of the guest bathroom which looked out onto the street. 
The windows were locked, but every day Laura chipped away a bit of the plaster surrounding the window frame, until one day she got bored with this and just unlocked the window. The gap was too narrow to squeeze through, but Laura had a plan. She waited for her kidnapper to leave, then rushed into the bathroom, waited for him to walk underneath the window, and shouted cunt. It was a tremendous victory, although he didn't hear her. After a few months, she had won his confidence to the extent that at weekends she was now allowed to spend 20 seconds outside the front door, as long as she was with him. After a couple of weeks, he upgraded this to 20 minutes in the local park with someone who looked like him, and eventually she was allowed to spend 20 hours anywhere with anyone who had a vaguely similar hat. Laura thought about asking if this could be her godmother Alice, but then she remembered Alice didn't have the right sort of hat, so that hope was quickly extinguished. He also began to allow her to go shopping with him, and even occasionally to run the odd errand on her own, taking out the trash, posting letters, going busking, and so on. When his motorbike was stolen, he asked her to go and report it to the police. At first she couldn't be bothered and he was about to go himself, when she suddenly realised what a great opportunity to report her kidnapping this might be, so she quickly changed her mind and said she'd be happy to go to the police, as long as she could have an ice cream afterwards. He agreed to her demands, and with her heart thumping in her chest, she made her way to the police station and walked in. Of course, first of all, she had to report the theft of the motorbike. This process was long and tedious, involving filling in loads of paperwork, to the extent that she almost forgot to mention her kidnapping at all. But as soon as she did bring it up, the police pricked up their ears. The Laura Bingdat abduction case was now over a year old, and this was their first lead in a long time. Quick as a flash, they got her to sit down and tell them in words of one syllable what her kidnapper's name was. Laura had to admit that she hadn't really been listening when he had introduced himself, and she was now too embarrassed to ask him, but she said his second name definitely had at least two syllables anyway. So instead, they asked her what he looked like. She said, mid-70s, although as it was 1975, everyone looked mid-70s, so that wasn't any help at all. Next, they got the police artist to come up with a sketch of her abductor based on her description, but he couldn't think of a decent punchline, so the idea was dropped. But they did at least now have one useful identifying feature for him, that tattoo of a wanker on his arm. By this time, Laura thought her captor might be getting suspicious, so she thanked the police and hurried back to her prison. Luckily, he'd fallen asleep in front of the television, so didn't even notice how long she'd been gone. She cursed her luck. Now she'd never get that ice cream. In the meantime, the police began conducting door-to-door inquiries, but none of the doors came up with anything useful so they tried knocking on them instead and seeing if any of the people who opened them had a tattoo that matched Laura's description. Over the next three months, they found around 20,000 people with just such a tattoo. Indeed, the real kidnapper himself was briefly called in for questioning before the police eliminated him from their inquiries because they fancied him. Despite initial high hopes, this new evidence had led to another dead end for the police 
so they went to bed. Perhaps because of his managing to outwit the law so completely, Laura's kidnapper began to get a little overconfident, even sloppy. Sometimes when he went out he would forget to lock the front door, and a couple of times left it open entirely, with an arrow drawn on a piece of paper stuck above the doorway pointing at it, leaving Laura alone for hours at a time. She was terrified. Anyone could have just walked in. When he got back and she confronted him about it, to calm her down, he suggested she might like to take a short holiday on her own. This, finally, was her big chance to get away. He booked her in for a week at the Streatham Hilton in London, England, and she knew she'd never get a better opportunity for escape. But when she arrived back from her holiday at JFK Airport, intending to give him the slip and vanish into the crowd, he was nowhere to be seen. She had to make her own way back to his apartment, only to discover it was totally deserted and all of his stuff had gone. She was now all alone in the world, and didn't have a dime to spend on accommodation apart from all the traveller's checks he'd given her. She couldn't believe he could be so brutal as not even to leave a forwarding address. It took her three days to track him down to a small studio apartment in Queens, and by this time she was so distraught she demanded he release her there and then. What happened next, she never saw coming. If you like Christian pigeons in water, but like things a little more spicy, then you're going to love topless Christian pigeons in soapy water. A brand new saucy late night magazine, only available after 10pm, for the more mature reader of magazines about Christian pigeons in water. Ooh la la. Or should that be coo la la. No, it shouldn't be coo-la-la, Laura yelled. Stop going on about pigeons and let me go. But even as she shouted this ultimatum, she knew it was futile. So she didn't even wait for his answer. She just threw herself onto the bed and screamed herself to sleep. He had won again. And not only that, it was her 21st birthday in seven weeks' time. Sad birthday to you, sad birthday to you, sad birthday Laura being dead. In seven weeks time. From then on they led increasingly separate lives. After four months, her kidnapper moved out to Newark, New Jersey, leaving her alone in the studio apartment in Queens. But despite everything, he still wouldn't let her go, even though he said he actually really wanted to. The result was that he would call in at her apartment every week to drop off groceries and clean clothing, which Laura later said he did with increasingly bad grace. But even this became more sporadic, and, in an effort to cope with the daily abject terror of her kidnap ordeal, Laura was forced to get herself a really good job in Wall Street and soon began making big bucks. She moved into a penthouse in Manhattan 
but still couldn't avoid her abductor knowing where she lived because she sent him an invitation to her housewarming. He was obviously much too smart to let her out of his clutches and now had her new address, although he didn't actually go to the party and didn't even RSVP. Perhaps she would never have escaped if it hadn't been for her saviour, her knight in shining armour who rode to her rescue, a brave hero by the name of September the 11th. As part of her high-powered Wall Street job, Laura had to pick up the till money from the Twin Towers once a year on September the 11th. So it was sheer bad luck that she happened to be in on the one day of the year that you can absolutely guarantee two planes are going to crash into them. Ironically enough, if Laura hadn't been kidnapped, she might have been killed that day. But because she'd been so traumatised by her abduction ordeal that she was never able to get up before 8am and couldn't do a thing until she'd had her morning cappuccino, she was only just knocking on the front door of the Twin Towers when the first plane struck. Like everyone else who lived through that terrible day, she thought it was funny until the second plane hit and then realised it was all a big deadly prank. Something inside her snapped and delayed PTSD from her 27-year kidnap misery struck her all at once. She immediately lapsed into a coma. But she didn't really like it in the coma, so she came out of it and went to watch television. However, the damage had been done, and it quickly became apparent that her trauma had triggered severe amnesia, she couldn't remember who she was, or where she lived, or how many croissants she'd had that morning. She was later diagnosed as having entered a temporary dissociative fugue state. The only thing she was able to remember for the next few hours was that it was September the 11th's birthday. Happy fugue state to you. Happy fugue state to you. On September the 11th, happy fugue state voice to how do you do? State but to who am me. I? Happy fugue state and to who are me. you? It's September what the is my 11th, name? where do happy I live? State and how many croissants did I eat this morning? How many croissants did I eat today? Happy Fugue State to me. Happy Fugue State to me. Happy Fugue State to me. Happy Fugue and the fugue state began to retreat. to retreat. And her memory gradually began to return. She remembered who she was, where she lived, and how many croissants she'd eaten that morning. Five. More importantly, she now remembered her kidnapper's name, although she neglected to write it down, and an hour later she'd forgotten it again. But she had a feeling there was a P in it somewhere. Or a D. One thing she did suddenly realise is that her kidnapper would undoubtedly assume she'd been killed in the terrorist attack on the towers, and if she was dead, surely there was no way she could remain kidnapped. She was so excited she rang him up to tell him the news, 
and he had no option but to admit defeat immediately. Finally, after nearly 30 years of captivity, she was free. Unfortunately, despite thinking there might have been a P or a D in his name, she couldn't remember anything more about her abductor, except that actually instead of a P or a D, it might have been a B or, or a K or, or an E. So it began to look like he might never be traced. And that might have been it, if it hadn't been for one detective, Sam Ketchup, the only cop in the whole of the NYPD still working the Laura Bingdat abduction case 30 years on. Late one night in 2004, whilst poring over endless photos of wanker tattoos, he accidentally knocked a bunch of them onto the floor, and when he looked down at them, he suddenly noticed something. That wanker was an anagram of Newark. Well, that was enough to narrow down the suspects to the only one with a Newark address. Surely it had to be him. There was no other explanation. Detective Ketchup sped over to the kidnapper's apartment first thing the next morning, but by sheer bad luck he just popped out for a newspaper, and Ketchup had a hairdressing appointment to get to, so he reluctantly had to admit defeat. The police never found the kidnapper, although they did find his motorbike. It took another 12 years before amateur sleuths finally worked out his identity and his whereabouts, but I forgot what they said. I think he died or something anyway. As for Laura Bingdat, she had a joyful reunion with her godmother, Alice Dorsheim, on September the 16th, where she finally got to finish her cornflakes. She gave up her job on Wall Street and went back to school the very next day, this time making sure she didn't take the shortcut. So the next time you think to yourself that September the 11th is stupid, maybe you're stupid. Yeah. And uh, that is the end of uh, this uh, episode. Good night. Uh, and remember, don't have nightmares. Have crime mares. Come to five.